from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. The Milwaukee County Transportation Service for People with Disabilities has ended. Today we'll explore why and what's next. Then we'll learn about Present Music's upcoming performance, which explores anti-Semitism and hate campaigns. I didn't imagine that it would be so relevant would take such such a horrific turn of events. Plus, we'll look at the history of Milwaukee's Jones Island. There are few landscapes in Milwaukee or anywhere that have been through so many transformations. It shows you how easy it is for us to transform the landscape and how easy it is to forget what was there before. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Since 2000, Milwaukee County has provided on-demand taxi transportation for people with disabilities. But that program ended last month. While there are still transportation options available for people with disabilities through the county transit system, those alternatives have failed to consistently arrive on time over the summer. Now, transit advocates are worried about their ability to move freely in the future. Lake Effect Sam Wood spoke with transit advocates, county officials, and journalists to find out why this paratransit taxi program ended, how people who used the program are adjusting, and what the future holds. Kevin Myers is always on the move. He's retired, but he serves on numerous nonprofit and government committees, is involved in his local Lions Club, and trains six days a week for bike rides lasting over 200 miles. I'm big into racing tandem bikes, or I should say was racing tandem bikes. Now I'm more into endurance riding, uh, which I really enjoy doing, which is, some have been pretty long. 200, and I think the longest one was 235 miles earlier this year. Kevin is also blind, which makes movement and transportation more of a challenge. Kevin has relied on Milwaukee County's paratransit taxi service since the program began in 2000 to get to all of his appointments, and to get to work when he was working as a software developer. The service was subsidized by the county government and functioned like a low-cost rideshare service for people with disabilities, similar to a Lyft or Uber, but cheaper. But that program ended last month, on September 28th. After 23 years, county officials decided to sunset the program, and the program is not included in this year's county budget. In short, the program was cut due to cost because new federal regulations for transit services for people with disabilities necessitated an investment in the program that the county deemed too costly. Milwaukee County Director of Transportation Donna Brown-Martin explains this sudden change in regulation. The trigger for this was a mandate from Federal Transit Administration stating that if your transit service, if your on-demand service did not perform provide for wheelchair accessible vehicles. And if it still uh, did not have the ability to uh, do drug testing of its drivers, then it's not eligible for service with federal funds. The paratransit taxi program was always an extra service from the county that went beyond the minimum requirements from the Americans with Disabilities Act. For years, the program was able to operate without wheelchair-accessible vehicles because the county also offered vans for that service. 
However, Brown Martin explains that starting this year, it would be legally impossible to run the program as it has been run previously without jeopardizing federal funding for the county's whole transit system, including MCTS buses. It was not 100% funded by federal funds. Uh, it was funded by um, funded by tax levy. Um, so county tax levy covered it. But despite the fact that it was covered by tax levy, it was still a service connected to the paratransit uh, system and um, federal transit administration rules governed our ability to move forward with that. Now, the county could have continued a similar on-demand taxi option for people with disabilities beyond the current year while meeting federal requirements that those on-demand services be wheelchair accessible and include random drug testing for drivers. But in order to do so, the county estimated in June that the program budget would have to increase threefold while also doubling fares charged to riders and limiting usage to two times per month per rider. Urban Milwaukee reporter Graham Kilmer has been reporting on this topic throughout the year, and he explains that adding money to this program from the county budget was a difficult ask to begin with. To come into compliance with these rules, the county would have had to add money to an existing contract, and that is a difficult thing for just about any county agency to do because for the last two decades, essentially, the county budget has been a mess. And so transit officials were essentially saying that to be in, considered in compliance with federal transportation rules, the program needed more money than was currently being budgeted for. The low number of riders using the taxi service also made it difficult to justify tripling the program budget. Of the nearly 25,000 trips taken using the taxi service in 2022, only about 70 people accounted for over half those trips. Here's Graham again. When they're looking at, you know, increasing the amount of funding they're going to put into the taxi contract, um, they're also looking at who the taxi service serves and how does that compare to the much larger transit plus van paratransit service? Mm -hmm. So the taxi service is same day on demand, but it's not door to door. Mm -hmm. So if you can't walk or if you have trouble walking, you probably can't use the taxi service. If you call um, a paratransit van, mm -hmm. the, uh, the people that work on the paratransit van will help you get on the van. Mm -hmm. They will qu quite literally come to the door of your home, mm -hmm. take you from the door of your home, and make sure you get safely on the van. The taxi service did not provide that, and it certainly didn't provide that for people in wheelchairs because, once again, they didn't have wheelchair-accessible vehicles. Earlier, I mentioned that the county still does offer rides to people with disabilities, and that is through the van service that Graham just mentioned. And here's where we encounter some terminology that can get confusing. Milwaukee County offers transit services for people with disabilities under the umbrella of Transit Plus. This includes transit vans, which are continuing for the foreseeable future, and transit taxis, which ended last month. The vans are wheelchair accessible, but need to be scheduled at least 24 hours in advance. The taxis were not wheelchair accessible, but were available on demand. So, to be clear, Milwaukee County is still providing paratransit rides for people with disabilities, but those options need to be scheduled at least 24 hours in advance. But perhaps more importantly, 
These vans are not seen as reliable by many of their riders. Kevin, who we met at the beginning of the story, who trains for bicycle races over 200 miles long, is one rider who does not trust the vans to get him where he needs to go on time. He stopped using the vans years ago, and he explains why he is skeptical of their reliability. When I did use it, uh, it was before the pandemic, and uh, I was going to the north side of town to play goalball, which is a sport for people who are visually impaired or blind. It was at this elementary school, and there's been many times I could not get to the event on time uh, to play, because at the time it started at, I wasn't, I wouldn't be getting there until like an hour into it, hour and a half into it, because the van was late picking me up. So that really didn't sit well with me. And then there's numerous times I would, the activity was over, and I'd be at school. Uh, my pickup time was 8.15, and I didn't get picked up till 10 o'clock at night. So here I'm sitting at this elementary school waiting, and the people there were supposed to close the school at 9 o'clock, and now somebody had to stay there. So they're, the school's having to pay somebody more more to stay there because I'm late because the van's not picking me up. So that just really got me to really stay away from taking the van when those types of issues happened. Now, Kevin's story is from several years ago, but stories like his are common among people who utilize the taxi service. And even when the van is not egregiously late or just does not show up at all, people like Kevin still see it as unreliable because the county's definition of on time does not always match up with a more common understanding of what is on time. Here's urban Milwaukee reporter Graham Kilmer again to explain this difference. As soon as it became clear that the taxi service was going away, paratransit riders began to share stories about how they don't really consider the van service to be reliable, certainly not for all the trips that they need to take. An example of that is that the county considers a paratransit van on time if it arrives within a 30-minute window of the scheduled pickup time, for example. So if you schedule a van for 1 o'clock and it arrives at 129, the county still considers that on time. So even when it's operating smoothly and 90% of rides are meeting that window, not all riders really consider that a feasible option for all the trips they have to make, whether it's to work or to medical appointments or what have you. And to add fuel to this skepticism, just as the taxi program was about to end, the van alternative that the county is offering to people with disabilities began to fail. And the reason for this requires some context. Last year, the county agreed to a seven-year contract with First Transit, a paratransit company that had been providing van service in the county previously. But before the contract even kicked in, and it's not scheduled to kick in until October 29th of this year, First Transit was bought out by the French multinational transportation provider Transdev. So now, the county was stuck in a contract with a company that they did not initially agree to a contract with for seven years. Then... When Transdev began to take over providing van rides in August, they were unable to handle the task. Here's Graham again to explain how that timing has left people who use the taxi service worried about the future. Right as the taxi program is about to sunset, about to close out as it did at the end of September, the van service begins to fail, critically fail. Transdev was not actually ready to begin taking over 100% of paratransit rides in the county. 
because transportation officials had set it up so they were going to be moving riders over to this sole contractor, Transdev, in waves. And as soon as that first wave hit in August, they didn't have enough operators at this one contractor. And people were missing rides. They were missing appointments. They were being left stranded places. And all of a sudden, the service that the county is telling users of the taxi, this is what you'll now have to use, it's become more unreliable than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. And that was because the new single contract for the service just was not prepared. And at a public hearing, you know, officials from this company, Transdev, they said as much. They said they weren't prepared. So, I mean, that was... You know, that was a scary time for a lot of people who use the service, from what I understand from speaking with advocates and writers, because, you know, they already, many, are not entirely confident in the ability to use the van service to get to all their appointments on time, to get to work on time. And now the backup, the taxi service is gone, and the van service is falling apart. For Kevin, this level of unreliability is not acceptable not only because it limits the spontaneity that riders like him enjoyed with the taxis, but also because being chronically late can lead to larger issues like employment discrimination for people with disabilities. If you can't make it to your job, or a person can't make it to their job because of the van service being late, what is that going to make look like for any other individual that's a disability applies at the same company? What kind of, how's the employer going to look at this? thinking that if this one employee is late to work often, what are they going to think about another person with a disability? Are they going to be able to make it to work on time? Milwaukee County Director of Transportation Donna Brown-Martin said that the van's unreliability this summer came down to staffing, that more drivers are needed to be hired in order to get back to an acceptable level of reliability. While she acknowledged concerns about van reliability based on what happened this summer and says she understands why people are skeptical, Brown Martin said that she still expects the van service to provide a reliable transportation option for the long term. Long term, fully expect that that's going to be the case as soon as we get all of our drivers on board, we get them trained how we want them trained uh, to deliver the service. Uh, it's I believe that the service will get better, and we will work to ensure that it stays um, at, a, at a level and a quality that they expect. So where do we go from here? For one, the paratransit taxi service, as it was previously known, is gone. Nobody got talked to. Not transit advocates, not reporters, not county officials. Nobody believes it will be coming back as it was. And for the time being, the vans will be the only option for people who previously used the taxis. But there is a chance that some kind of on-demand transportation service, like the taxis, returns. The county has assembled a task force made up primarily of people who use the taxi service to find an alternative that meets federal requirements that can be implemented in the future. In addition, the Southeast Wisconsin Regional Planning Commission, or Sewer Pack, is looking at other models throughout the country to see what can be done here. And Kevin Myers is on that task force, and he says that he is committed to finding a way to bring back an on-demand service so that people with disabilities can handle when life inevitably becomes unpredictable. What if somebody that, that's working and their child gets sick at daycare? 
you can't schedule a van, tw- you know, a van that you need to schedule 24 hours of events. You don't know your child's going to suddenly come down sick. So that's where the on-demand transportation service needs to be, needs to exist here in Milwaukee County. For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods. That was Lake Effect Sam Woods, speaking with Milwaukee County Director of Transportation Donna Brown-Martin, Urban Milwaukee Reporter Graham Kilmer, and on-demand transit advocate Kevin Myers. You can learn about alternative options for transportation at wuwm.com. In about 20 minutes, we'll explore what makes a bad movie good in a conversation about trash cinema. There is so much significance (laughs) in trash that we've been kind of unwilling to recognize for so long because we're so obsessed with markers of quality. But first, we'll explore a new performance from Present Music based on a newly rediscovered film that predicted the Holocaust. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. On 89.7 WUWM, I'm Joy Powers. This Thursday, Present Music will have a unique performance featuring a recently rediscovered film. Die Stadt ohne Juden, or The City Without Jews, first premiered nearly a hundred years ago and predicted some of the events of the Holocaust. The film will be accompanied by a score performed by Present Music and conducted by Yaniv Dinur. Dinur joins me now to talk about the piece. Yaniv, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So this is a piece that, of course, you've been working on for quite some time. It feels oddly uh, prescient at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about the the genesis of this work? Uh, This piece that we are going to perform is a, a soundtrack for a silent film the film itself was produced in 1924 and it's based on the on a book by the same title a city without jews and um the book and the movie um, kind of predict the events of the holocaust the movie was and, and the book they they were both very popular at the time um the book was a bestseller and but the, the movie was lost and it was just recently discovered in a flea market in Paris in, uh, about seven years ago. And after it was discovered, one of the leading composers of our time, Olga Neuwirth, was asked to write music for it. So this is the, the music that we are going to perform while the movie is shown. So uh, they're presenting the, the complete movie and, and we are playing the soundtrack live. One of the fascinating things about this movie is kind of its trajectory. And I think this was really uh, predicted much of uh, what we would later see during the uh, Holocaust. What has it been like working in that kind of space? Well, actually, when I was asked to conduct this movie, I was... um... 
of course, I said yes, it sounded very interesting, but you know, this is, um, these are tough subjects, the, the Holocaust and uh, anti-Semitism. And uh, of course, growing up in Israel, you are surrounded by this. You, you learn about the Holocaust um, from day one, basically. And uh, you, you see movies about it uh, on TV. And uh, of course, there's the um, Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, there's, uh, there are ceremonies uh, every year um, all over the country. So I think for a lot of it's, it's so it's so difficult to, to deal with. Uh, that at least for me, that uh, one of the things to do with this subject is to kind of uh, disconnect yourself uh, from it. So when I said yes to do this project, uh, this was going to be my approach. Uh, my approach to it. Uh, okay, I'm going to conduct this movie, this music, uh, but I'm going to be emotionally disconnected because this is my way to to deal with these things. Unfortunately, the, I didn't imagine that it would be so relevant and it would take such, such a horrific turn of events. Um, and of course, I'm referring to the terrible events that we're seeing in Israel uh, at this time. It has been much more difficult than I expected because it, uh, it kind of uh, open, kind of flooded me with uh, all these um, emotions and um, difficult, uh, difficult feelings. Understandably. How are you feeling right now as someone who grew up in Israel watching just what, what's happening? It's a very difficult time. I'm very fortunate that my own family is safe. I'm, of course, in touch with them daily about the situation, but, um, you know, it's such a small country and and um, we all know somebody who was directly affected by the terrorist attack of Hamas on Israeli citizens on October 7th. So I know I know people whose family members were kidnapped or, or murdered and it's uh, and you keep hearing this stories and uh, you see you see the news and you see the social media posts that are even worse than the news it's a very difficult time and and uh, the fact that uh, um, coincidentally i'm also doing this movie um, that was produced a hundred years ago but um, it's so it's still relevant uh, it's not an easy experience yeah there is so much that's happening right now, but one of the things that is undeniable is uh, that we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism once again. I, I, we're seeing, of course, quite a lot that's happening in the world, but that is an element of it. How do you how do you respond to that? You know, um, I I must uh, I must admit um, that unfortunately. I'm kind of used to it. I've become numb to it because we are so used to 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 seeing films and videos of people somewhere in the world uh, burning flags of Israel, burning flags of the United States, things like that. And okay, you know, you said this. Oh, another one of these. You know, what really shocked me that uh, last week I, I just heard about somebody who marked. Jewish homes in Berlin with a Star of David 
like they they did right right before the Holocaust, and and that really wow. I'm dealing with this, and again related to the movie that that I'm I'm conducting, and um, it's it's uh, it's rattling, you know. It it uh, it changes it it changes you, and uh, it makes you reconsider things you know i never thought that i would uh, i think nobody thought that we would witness something horrific uh, like that happening uh, in our lifetime it does feel like there is an urgency uh, to this piece uh, that again you've been working on for so long for, for this to come about at the same time is is just you know cosmic timing as it were but what do you hope when audiences come in and, and view this piece and hear the music and experience what you've been experiencing through this film, what do you hope they take home with them? You know, uh, there is one level that um, I say to myself, this is, uh, this is art after all, um, and I'm going to leave it to them to, to interpret it and to, to take what they want from it. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm hoping that it will remind people to look at the signs, um, because sometimes we see signs around us, things happen in, in the society around us that we're living, uh, not, not only far away, like in Israel, but also here in the, in the US. And sometimes we ignore it. Uh, for different reasons, so um, I'm hoping that that people will will see this movie and be perhaps more aware of what's happening around us and and do something about it if possible. Wiganeve, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your work. I, I think it sounds like an amazing performance. Thank you very much, and uh, yes, I think it's going to be an unsettling, but at the same time a powerful um, experience. Yaniv Denor is the conductor of Dishtat Ona Yudin, or The City Without Jews, for present music. The performance will be tomorrow evening at the Milwaukee Art Museum, and you can find more information at presentmusic.org. Milwaukee's Jones Island has a long history which many people may not realize, as they're passing over it on the Hone Bridge. It was home to the largest Native American village in Milwaukee. It was a trading post, shipyard, and fishing village, before becoming a strictly industrial space. The history of the peninsula is the subject of a PBS documentary called People of the Port. John Gerda is a Milwaukee historian who worked on the documentary, along with Claudia Luz, the director, co-producer, and editor. They joined me last year to share more about Jones Island and the documentary. Many Milwaukeeans pass by or often over Jones Island every day, maybe without realizing it. What are some of the earmarks of modern-day Jones Island that people might be familiar with? Both sight and smell, it is the home of Milwaukee's sewage treatment plant. So, so you get that when you're crossing the Hone Bridge. Uh, it's also where our, all our road salt comes in. So you have these salt mountains, uh, as well as what they call tank farms, petroleum products, freight yards. Nobody lives there. So, but it, it's a very non-residential landscape. And the Hone Bridge, that's how, that's how you get across. 
Of course, uh, that wasn't always the case. At times in its history, as your documentary gets into, there was a flourishing uh, village that really stood out in the landscape of urban cities around the nation. But before that, before settlers even come to Milwaukee, how much do we know about its native history, Jones Island? We know that it was the site of the largest Indian village in Milwaukee, uh, and the the first identifiable uh, record of Milwaukee is 1679, when a, a priest named Zenobius Membre, uh, a great name, uh, recorded a village at the river mouth. Uh, so it's it's been a, a site of human habitation for a very long time, but probably 500 people up to 1,000 people uh, as in Native times, uh, right at the, the tip of the peninsula. Now, I had assumed that uh, the industrialization of Jones Island was a a newer phenomenon, uh, something that maybe happened during the 1900s. But in many ways, that's a core part of its history once settlers arrive in the area. I guess I wondered as I was watching the documentary, why is that? Is it because of the location? Did the location just say to people like, you got to you got to make stuff there? (laughs) <laughs> they actually didn't make much there, Joy. It was uh, more processing. You know, it was the sewage plant. Uh, it's got it was it was infrastructure and is infrastructure, and that was so obvious. Uh, it was the the right place for both the port, this <laughs> Milwaukee's front door, as well as all that uh, you know intra, intramodal transportation or intermodal transportation between rail uh, and and boat and roads as well. So it was, it's, it's Milwaukee's front door. It's Milwaukee's front door. So that's, that made it the obvious place for all the things that are there now. It starts its history, it seems, um, when settlers get there as, uh, they built ships there. Is that? Yes, there, there was shipbuilding in, on Jones Island back in, John, what was the year? 18... 1850s, 1853. 50s, yes. And that's actually the reason it's called Jones Island. It was Captain Jones who was the schooner builder, um, and they could build a schooner in 60 days. And they were doing that on the island just with an enormous amount of noise, I suspect, and lots and lots of people. And they they pumped out these schooners, and they are absolute beauties. I mean, they're just, we have photographs in the documentary of examples of schooners from that time. The documentary itself is really image rich. There are a lot of different images. Um, I was particularly struck by uh, kind of the next era of Jones Island and the images that we get from um, the the fishing village that was on Jones Island that I think lives in a special place in Milwaukee history. I I was curious, where did you even find all of these images of these people of this village? Well, this is interesting. Back in the 90s, when Tony and I worked at Milwaukee PBS um, as freelancers, and I would sit and talk with her. She was the receptionist. Her name is Carlin Gallagher. And we would um, gab about all sorts of things. And she mentioned that she had these scrapbooks, these photo albums. And she knew that I was really interested in history. So she brought these photo albums in and they were from the turn of the last century, around like before World War One and through World War One and into the um, 20s and 30s. And they're all photographs of her family from Jones Island. And they are take the the photographer was, I believe, a great uncle. 
and he would write on the photos like this was f 2.8 and the the type of film he used and he was a truly great photographer and he took pictures not only of the homes but of people and you see people in their you know casual dress sometimes but also when they um, were dressed up for going to weddings or to a funeral. So there's just, the, there was this wealth of photographs. It's a family album of a, a village that was one of the most unusual in the United States. And beyond Carlin's, these wonderful photographs of candids on the island, there was a school there from 1896 to 1919. And we have this wonderful coverage of kids on these improvised seesaws, you know, actually probably ship beams. Uh, they were, uh, they were on them. Then the teachers were on them. Uh, so these these intrepid young women who were rowed out to the, the island every day, including the during the the ice choked uh, times of winter. So it's it's just it's it's a fascinating study. Well, and to take a step back, uh, the village that we're talking about, the people that we're talking about are uh, the Kashubs. If you've been to Jones Island, uh, there's a good chance you've been to Kashub Park. It is a very tiny park in the middle of a very industrial area. I remember the first time I went there, I thought, why is this park here? Because nobody nobody lives on Jones Island, as, as you mentioned. Uh, I definitely did not realize the history of the Kashubs. Who were they and how did they leave their mark on Jones Island? Uh, first of all, it's, it's Milwaukee cred if you've been at Kashubs Park. <laughs> Most people haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean finding it's not that easy. Uh, the Kashubs are uh, kind of an ethnic subgroup from Poland uh, up on the Baltic seacoast around uh, Gdańsk or, or Danzig uh, in German. And they speak a dialect that's somewhat different from mainstream Polish, kind of German-influenced. And it's a little like Bavarians in Germany. You know, they are German, but they're also Bavarian. So Kashubs are Polish, but they're also Kashubian. And they were fisher folk near the Baltic Sea coast and farmers inland. Uh, my own grandmother's side was were all Kashubian farmers. But they came to Milwaukee back in around 1872 and later, and they found uh, this opportunity where everybody else was working in factories to continue the way of life that they'd known for, for centuries back in Poland. So it's really, really unusual. For 50 years, that community lasted. So it's a, uh, an urban village in the truest sense of the word. And the peninsula looks so much like Jones Island. They came from a peninsula called Hell, H-E-L, this little peninsula on the north end of Poland in the Baltic. And it looks so similar, same shape and everything. So it's remarkable. And there's a reunion uh, the first Saturday of August every every year at Kashubs Park. And Tony and Claudia photographed it. So it's uh, it's featured in the documentary. The, the backstory there is that is the site of the last human habitation on Jones Island. Uh, after they were evicted for the sewage treatment plant in the port of Milwaukee back in the 20s, there was a little cluster of six houses uh, that hung on until they were evicted for reasons of port security back during World War II. So that was uh, the last place people lived, and I, I, I called it a uh, an act of whimsy. You know, the, the city made it a park and called it Kashubs. Very appropriate. Now, the documentary itself, it gets into a lot more, including a really fascinating layout of Jones Island during its time as a fishing village. I'm guessing, Tony, that you were responsible yeah. for that. Yeah, I did 
did a little rebuild in 3D since there's really nothing else there. From photograph references that we had, I built sort of a section to show sort of the chaotic nature of roads going every which way because there really was no urban planning there. People just put up a house with whatever materials they found. Um, and so there is a section where John is explaining that if we were one to walk through that area, you'd have a hard time making your way around. So I was able to rebuild a lot of the buildings, um, structures, things around it in 3D and give the audience sort of a walkthrough briefly of, of what that might have looked like. I won't get too much into the more modern history of Jones Island, but as we get into kind of the more modern decades, we, we see this a decided change in the landscape. It, of course, goes from being a fishing village to now really just industrial uses. But as you look at all the the sum of its parts, what do you view as the story of the island? Change, change, and change. You know, there there are few landscapes in Milwaukee or anywhere, you know, that have been through so many transformations. You go from an Indian village to a trading post, to a shipyard, to a, uh, a fishing village, to uh, urban infrastructure. You know, that just, it shows you how, how easy it is for us to transform the landscape and how easy it is to forget what was there before. John Gerda is a Milwaukee historian. Claudia Luz is the director, co-producer, and editor of The People of the Port, a Jones Island documentary. Tony Wood is the technical director. They all spoke with me last year. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up, we're talking trash. Trash cinema, that is. And what makes it so good to watch? That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Have you ever seen a movie so bad it's good? It could just be a bad film, but it could also fit into the genre of trash cinema. Films that may seem trashy on the surface can actually have historical, societal, and cultural significance. In fact, UW-Milwaukee Director of Film Studies Jocelyn Zapaniak-Galise has a whole class dedicated to the genre. She says that trash films push boundaries and take on the taboo. To help us understand what makes a movie trash cinema, Zapaniak-Galise joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. We think about trash typically as being something low budget, something that looks a little amateurish, um, something that doesn't quite fit into standard mainstream approaches to film. The way that I like to think about trash cinema is that it's a little bit tasteless. So it's something that sort of pushes the boundaries of good taste and makes us question whether we even should be watching it or, or perhaps most saliently tell anybody that we watched it at all. So this is something I was just thinking about. Do you think there's a difference between a B-movie and trash cinema? 
I do. I do. And part of that, I think, would be about this notion of taste. So so when I talk about trash cinema, I'm always actually secretly um, providing some kind of a philosophical approach to how we think about taste cultures and how uh, how taste is not something natural. Right. Like the thing that you like, you don't just like it because you like it. You like it because you're educated in a certain way, because you're in a certain class, um, often a certain race, uh, even a certain gender, a certain nationality. Right. So our tastes are shaped by all these different ideologies and experiences that we have. Therefore, um, a B movie, that's not always really the appropriate parameters of trash because we can look at something like Showgirls, which is not a B movie. Um, there was actually a significant amount of um, budget invested in that film, but that is wholeheartedly trash. And it's because it's so much about um, what are the boundaries of good taste and what, what are also the boundaries of vulgarity and what's appropriate on screen. Yeah, so to dive into that a little bit more, as you say, one big component of trash cinema is pushing those boundaries in a distasteful but, you know, important way sometimes as well. So you mentioned vulgarity. What other kind of boundaries are we talking about when it comes to trash cinema? Vulgarity is a really easy one to point to, right? Like trash cinema is often kind of obscene, right? It's something that um, that we really don't, you know, we don't want children to watch it. Um, we don't want like anybody who's in like a proper sophisticated kind of art situation to watch it. But it's not just vulgarity, right? You're right. In fact, uh, and this is really important for thinking about trash, because trash operates outside um, mainstream boundaries and outside respectability, um, it can also take on certain elements of things that maybe don't seem like they would be entirely socially appropriate at the time, such as um, issues around queerness. Um, so I think in particular about Edward Jr.'s film, Glenn or Glenda, which is released in 1953. And that film, which is, it's really amateurish, it's really low budget, it's really kind of only halfway narrative, but it takes on issues of being trans and the story of Christine Jorgensen, who was um, a really well-known trans celebrity in the 1950s, and really kind of excavates what that experience is like, which is extremely rare for a film in 1953. So even though that's not a super vulgar movie, even though, you know, it's a low budget, we wouldn't quite put it as a B movie because it's more independent. It operates outside the boundaries of the mainstream and thus can make us think about um, certain social issues that also exist outside of the mainstream. One thing that trash cinema does give us that benefits what we may consider, depending on your test, like, you know, the golden standard of cinema, the ones in the canon, the AFI 100 list, all this good stuff is the role of tropes. Uh, and you say without trashy cinema and the tropes that come with it, we wouldn't have these big, successful, well-regarded movies of today. Can you touch upon that? Sure. What seems trashy at any moment in time is what operates outside the borders of propriety, right? Like what polite society feels okay talking about or okay discussing. And those borders are constantly shifting, right? Mm -hmm. We're constantly pushing against what is socially appropriate to discuss, but also what is stylistically or aesthetically appropriate to show. So I think about something like um, Herschel Gordon Lewis's films. He uh, made a lot of, he's, he's kind of like the king of splatter films. Um, he made uh, uh, films like Blood Feast in the early 1960s, which is just, I mean, it's just gore. It's just like pure gore. That's it. It's just gore. There's really nothing else going on. It's, <laughs> it's just like a kind of celebration of like how much gore can we throw at the screen? 
if Herschel Gordon-Lewis hadn't done that, we then wouldn't have um, additional kind of approaches to gory movies that are things like, like Night of the Living Dead at the end of the 1960s, which at this point is a totally canonical film, right? That is totally canonical. But without Herschel Gordon-Lewis's super amateurish, super out there, outre approach to filmmaking, that movie really wouldn't have been possible. And of course, people like Quentin Tarantino, um, he uses so many elements of earlier trashy movies, whether it's movies like Switchblade Sisters, which was a film that he really celebrated, or um, kind of Hong Kong action movies that exist um, on the periphery, at least, you know, in the 1990s when Quentin Tarantino is starting up. He takes on a lot of those elements and makes them socially acceptable, turns them actually into Oscar-nominated films. But... It's all coming from a celebration and a love of trash. I'd love to talk about how people see trash film or once saw trash film. You know, so we're ranging from 1950s before up to the 90s today. You know, what's its place in small movie theaters? What was the start of it? Was it like an underground scene? You know, ultimately, can you explain the genesis before today where we can simply search and see if we can stream it somewhere or a random trash thing is uploaded to YouTube in a channel dedicated to trash cinema? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's a huge question because... uh, but it's also a question I'm delighted by because I am an exhibition historian and that's my specialization. Um, so we, I, I often look at the roots of trash cinema in, well, about the very early 1930s, although we can really locate it a bit earlier than that too. Um, but the early 1930s is when exploitation cinema becomes something really, really popular. The term exploitation does not actually come from people being exploited or um, ideas or um, you know social mores being exploited. It actually comes our best guess is that it comes from the kind of advertising that was used um, for this particular kind of film. And that kind of advertising is also based on a kind of carnival barker approach, right? Mm -hmm. Like somebody who's like, come in one and all, see this crazy sideshow and check out what's happening. So exploitation films, um, they were often uh, positioned as educational films. They were only vaguely educational, um, but they could use that then to provide all sorts of um, sort of gory details from everything from like actual footage of childbirth, right, to um, images of um, nudity, all under the guise of something educational. An exploitation film would show in theaters that were like on the wrong side of the tracks, sometimes, right? Like things that were not quite the fancy downtown theaters, or sometimes exploitation cinema would um, be shown in uh, in a process called four-walling, and that would be renting out some kind of a theatrical space that was really underused, um, showing your film really quickly, and then kind of taking off um, after the weekend of showing. So there's a really long legacy of showing trashy, unacceptable, kind of edgy films in places that typical members of polite society would not necessarily go. So then if we skip forward a bit into the 1970s in particular, we get um, wonderful examples of midnight screenings. And this is, I think, what we all think about now as like this golden era of trash cinema, which is the 1970s. Of course, trashy cinemas would show at drive-ins, but they would also show at theaters like the Elgin, which is one of my very favorite theaters. Um, it was in New York and the Elgin showed both art house movies and then would show um, trashy kind of out there movies at midnight. So there's a great tradition of showing trash in moments where um, you wouldn't see a kind of normal acceptable film. And that adds to the cachet of seeing a trash movie. I have to think that 
another component of that is word of mouth, right? Because people can't come to, you know, these off-the-road theaters unless they know what's happening. And the shock value of the trash cinema is what gets people to talk about it and then continue to show it, right? You're exactly right, Audrey. That is how the Elgin like understood marketing. They knew that in order to make um, a midnight movie phenomenon, you could advertise it to a certain amount, but you really had to get people talking about it. You have to get the right cool people talking to the right other cool people. And so it's those kind of like informal networks of distribution that add to a film's cult status and can transform a film from something trashy into something that gets like kind of like trash canonized. Or on the other hand, something arty that gets a little bit trash canonized. <laughs> so I'm thinking here about something like Eraserhead, which is, you know, now we think of David Lynch as like, whoa, it's David Lynch. He's Mr. Art movie, right? Um, but when Eraserhead came out, people didn't know what to do with it. And they were like really disturbed and upset about it by showing it at the Elgin and encouraging certain audiences to see it and then encouraging those audiences to talk to other audiences about it. That film in particular then became the sort of cult phenomenon tied to art phenomenon that it still is today. So even if some movies are made in bad taste and of course push boundaries or sometimes are just really awful, what's the cultural significance and societal significance of this genre? Oh, wow. There is so much significance (laughs) in trash that we've been kind of unwilling to recognize for so long because we're so obsessed with markers of quality, right? Mm -hmm. And so much of that has to do with... with film and mass media in general's um, excision from the realm of high art for so long, right? I mean, that's not true anymore, but for decades and decades, film struggled to be um, a part of that kind of like high art hierarchy. Trash manages to disrupt that hierarchy, right? It says that maybe what is high art is not the only thing that's of value. In fact, we can find so many diamonds in this dirt of trash cinema. And when we sift through it, we can discover so much more about what's actually happening um, in society writ large, what ideologies are really being talked about, what people are afraid of, what people are um, maybe titillated by. There's all sorts of things that we can sort of parse out when we start really looking at how trash functions. And that is true for a lot of trash cinema. It's why it's so important to uh, look to it and begin to understand it because we can see so many more elements there that couldn't be addressed in more standard uh, normal film. Certainly a a lot to dig into, but Jocelyn, I want to thank you so much for sharing some of it with me today. Yeah, thank you. Jocelyn Sapaniak galise is an associate professor of English and Film Studies and the director of Film Studies at UW-Milwaukee. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski in May. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we're looking into a story of a haunting. Bubbler Talk explores a listener's question about the legend of a haunted radio at Lehman Brewing. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.